This is Restless. It is the end of Winsome Winter, and we are kicking off the end of Winsome Winter here on Restless with Kristen Dumez Week. It's here, everyone. Pastor Michael is about to review Jesus and John Wayne for all of you. I am your. It's been a long time coming, uh, and we're excited to do it. I am your host, Matt, who does indeed feel like a man because today I took apart a children's playhouse with a screwdriver in a street so that I could Facebook market place my way home. And we will find out today if that view of my masculinity is problematic. That is that is militant masculinity uh, at its core. I, I'll just say it already. I even had alternative rock radio on and my kids were in the car. So we, we there is plenty of psychoanalyzing that could be done. But Pastor Michael, this was a big job for you. And so we thought it would only be right if you were given help in reviewing Yeah, this. so we got our friend David. Uh, David's back. Uh, if you remember, uh, David was with us for at least one episode. Uh, I don't know if it turned into two. I don't remember uh, of the rise and fall of Mars Hill. Uh, and so, David, welcome back, man. Yeah, thanks for uh, uh, bringing me back. We, when you when you said you were reading this book, I I, I decided to read it out of uh, pity. You know, misery loves company, and I thought you might enjoy some. Um, Honestly, and- really do appreciate it because it was it was it was a it was a tough one. I'm just gonna say that right away. I'll try to stay as uh, winsome wintry as I can, but it no, was- it's over. It's oh. warm now. <laughs> okay. It's done. In that case, it yeah. was hard. It was it was very hard. <laughs> <laughs> it was hard to get through. So I appreciate the company. And and we're happy to have David here because if you remember him from the episode of The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, he was a sultan of subtext. He was a colossus of context. He <laughs> is he is just great at um yeah, a really logical analysis of of these kinds of ideas and books and so I think it will be a great conversation with the two of them. I your listener, I am in the uh, joy of sheer ignorance about this book right now. Um, and so I'm excited. We're going to talk about the many ways how we cover these kinds of things. We're going to talk about the how the writer, what the writer's goal in the book was, what their what her thesis was. We'll talk about if there are things we can agree on. Obviously, you aren't listening to this because you assume we're going to give this a glowing review. And then we will talk about with uh, what problems might have occurred. And so I'll be here asking them questions, trying to get a handle of what this book is and why this book has shown up everywhere. That's the, that's the interesting thing is it's ubiquity in the evangelical world. So guys, take us away. Let's give us a, just a, in the most broad strokes, what is Jesus and John Wayne about? Yeah. So maybe I should just say up front, um, I took, I mean, I have uh, 12 pages of notes that are, it's almost typed in paper format, not quite. And it's just quotes and, you know, my thoughts and uh, how I would review it. Um, And they're not maybe perfectly worked out, but I'll probably make that available for patrons in some way. I'll, you know, we can uh, put that uh, behind the paywall there so that you can have a bit of that. Um, So there's a lot more than we can possibly say um, at this time. And I wanted to be thorough, right? Like I, I wanted, you know, part of it is just how I read this kind of book. Usually I enjoy reading, uh, books from a differing perspective. Um, uh, but I wanted, especially with this one, seeing all the like controversy around it, I wanted to know like, okay, I've got the receipts 
for what I think it's saying, why it's saying this. And it's a long book, correct? It was a long book. It was longer than I was expecting. Um, I don't remember the exact detail. I read it on Apple books. So it was, you know, it was kind of like it changed depending on the size of the font I made it and whether I was reading on my computer or on an iPad. And so it would change. Uh, So I don't know the exact number, but it's got to be, you know, well over 200 pages. The, the hardcover with notes is 368 pages. Yeah, there, there are extensive notes, okay. um, end notes. So there's a lot of end notes uh, involved. And so that's always, it's a pleasant surprise when you get near the end and you think, oh, this is going to, man, this is going to take forever. And then you uh, find out, no, it's actually, uh, we're about done because of the end notes. But anyway, in- so I have, I mean, there's only so much that we can do. Uh, but right. uh, in, in kind of entering into it, uh, how I would, uh, break down what I think the main reason for the book. And I'll read a th- what I believe the thesis statement of the book really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the main reason that this book was written is it's, it was an attempt to uh, figure out uh, why evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. This is uh, kind of uh, very core to the message. And so this is even, uh, you know, Uh, something that she asks in the introduction to the book. And this is where I believe this is the thesis statement of the book. So um, this is in the introduction. She says at one point, uh, evangelical support for Trump was no aberration. It was rather the culmination of evangelicals embrace of militant masculinity, an ideology that enshrines patriarchal authority and condones the callous display of power at home and abroad. Uh, So this is front and center. uh, How could these people support Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. You know, in the, in the wake of the Trump era, how, how could this be a thing? Well, it's because of these ideas of militant masculinity that were already there, you know, already working themselves out. And then she does a kind of historical analysis of these things coming about. So, so she is explaining in your, in what you're saying, obviously she, like everyone else is panicked as, as, as all people are. And to some degree at, at what has come to the polarization of America. And she's looking at both the history and beliefs that kind of have allowed evangelicals to, in her mind, so just be so hard in with Trump. If I'm putting that, if I'm restating that accurately. I think so. David, what do you think? Yeah, David, tell us your if you can differ, you know, as much as you want. You're welcome um, but, to differ. But yeah, how would you describe if someone asks you, David, David, you read this book. What what is it about? What is it? You know, what's the point of it? Yeah, I so I do think it, it's lar- it is a large it, I mean, it's largely it's, it's not a theological book. It's mostly a book about sociology, but sociology to the end of explaining politics and especially Donald Trump, like, um, like you said. Um, I also think you're seeing a redefinition of the word evangelical. I've, mm-hmm. I've heard this bandied about by Mark Knoll and a, a couple other people that whereas prior to 2016, evangelical was largely defined theologically in terms of beliefs, uh, you know, uh, centered on the cross and a born again experience, you know, the, the, the standard evangelical um, uh, you know, explanations of what it is to be an evangelical. It, it never really meant a lot. It was always very vague, but it was, it was always theological. Whereas now people are tending to describe evangelicals um, more culturally, more socially, 
Um, and this book, I think, is kind of a, a historical, she doesn't, I don't think she makes it unhistorical apologetic for that, but it ends up being that. Mm-hmm. that she, this, like, this is, this is why we can now, or this is, like, it's worthwhile to now talk about these, these groups of people culturally and sociologically as opposed to theologically. Though she does try to, when I say it's not theological, she never really cites beliefs or scripture or creeds or confessions. She will cite popular people who are popular in the evangelical world and say, that's theology. Mm. But from my point of view, that, that doesn't cut it as theology. Right. You know, yeah. Sound bites Jerry Falwell's nod. Yeah, yeah, she does though. I mean, so she does, I would argue that she's ambiguous. So she multiple times does bring up, yep, this is evangelicalism should be seen more as like a, a social cultural uh, kind of movement. Mm-hmm. However, she does in those contexts even often say, um, but it should not be completely unmoored from the doctrine or belief systems that underlie it. She's just going to seemingly argue that these things don't come, uh, or maybe a better way to put it is she implicitly tries to argue. In some places, it becomes a little more explicit uh, where she con contrast certain beliefs about you know who jesus is is he the conquering king this is in the introduction again you know is he you know the conquering king or is he like this you know the suffering lamb or i can't remember how she puts it exactly but she contrasts these things as if you know hey maybe these are you know completely different views of jesus so um these things come in they definitely bleed in like theological biblical issues bleed into what she's saying and Mm -hmm. she does believe that they somehow undergird some of the evangelical movement but also she does try to, you know, move it away from that. And obviously, like you said, she doesn't do um, like deep, deep. Here's this biblical analysis, um, except, you know, again, a couple points where she, you know, jumps in with just, uh, well, what about where the Bible says this, you know, mm-hmm. um, just as an offhand thing, uh, which, you know, I don't know what you do with that. I think one thing that David said that I think is potentially important, whether or not you like the book is that the redefinition of what it means to be an evangelical, I think is, is upon us. Um, right. This is why when you hear someone describe themselves as an ex evangelical and you go, Oh, what does that mean? Do you mean you don't believe in a born again experience? Do you not believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? They probably don't believe in those, but they're like, well, I was at my church and they were racist. And, and, and it's a, con- and to a person who, Wait, the sinners at church? I don't yeah, get it. Yeah, yeah. One, it's a, they're sinners. Not at our, not at our church, but I oh, that okay. is a thing. Oh, so, okay, but, yeah. but it's this strange, like, they describe all these cultural issues or interpersonal problems, and they go, and that's why I'm not an evangelical. And I go, okay, well, let's make sense. Maybe that explains why you left a church or a denomination. or But evangelical isn't really defined by any of those things. And... I think that is what it is largely um, becoming defined as. I think in the South, right, I often talk about like roll tide evangelicals. Like, I, because what I'm trying to get at is that just like cultural Christianity has always existed, there is a culture, there might be some version of a cultural form of evangelical. And, and that is how it is being used. This would be an interesting thing to talk to um, our actual sociologist friend about how much of evangelicalism should just be understood at this point in social through a sociological lens 
would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I've actually heard. So I heard, you know, hey, Brad, uh, you know, DM us if I'm wrong about this. But um, I believe I've heard Brad uh, uh, Vermerlin. This is our sociologist friend that Matt's talking about. I think I've seen him post about uh, basically the idea that like when you criticize evangelicalism as this like whole consistent uh, movement, cultural movement, uh, it does not take into account the reality that evangelicalism has never been a singular like united mm-hmm. movement but has always been uh you know pretty divided in major ways uh yeah. within itself and he i mean he brings that up in his book right i mean that that comes up in in his book about new calvinism too but let me just add quick um before yep. we move on and even well, some of these issues of like cultural christianity i think actually really interesting points that this book makes that we can uh discuss yep. a little bit about the religious right and some of the influence on on the church and uh, whether that was good or bad, uh, we can discuss. But um, one thing that I should point out is that this is not a book that is in any way neutral, right? Not mm-hmm. that you, not that you yeah. can be this, neutral. Yeah, but yeah, from the very yeah, beginning, this, this it becomes clear. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, David. What was that? Yeah, there's not even an attempt at, at neutrality. Um, I mean, it's in the title. <laughs> yep. <laughs> you, right. You, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And let me read the subtitle for everyone, because this actually gets at the second question I had about the thesis, this thesis, because it's, I think, important. So the subtitle, just so everyone knows, we all everyone just talks about it as Jesus and John Wayne. The title is Jesus and John Wayne, how white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. The the real concern a human should have when they read that title is she's laying at the feet of American evangelicals the state of the American like cultural and political landscape. Dang, that sucks. Cause it's in bad. It's in a bad place. And yep. two, even worse, if you're an actual evangelical, you've just been accused of corrupting the faith of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Specifically, I should, you know, I just want to correct you. It's white evangelical. Oh, sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, that have yeah. done all of this. I should, and I, so- I'm sorry that I, I forgot the racial <laughs> experience. So, but what I wanted to ask you guys about in with this thesis is right. If you look at this book, it was endorsed by Beth Moore. It's endorsed by the writers at Salon, at Vox, um, you know, at all at all over. Okay, whenever she's criticized for a view she puts forth in this book, she says, This is a work of history and sociology. Don't criticize me. And when you guys are both saying there is a clear agenda, if the if the agenda, the, because of how it's reacted to as an outside looking in, it has to have at least somewhat of a theological agenda, even though it's not a work of theology, or maybe it doesn't. What maybe? Yeah. So I'm asking, how does the agenda work? What You know, because it's supposed to work on evangelicals and we are people with a set of beliefs. So maybe I'm just not thinking about it right. How does the agenda kind of work through the book? Because she said, hey, you have this kind of a programmatic agenda for the church and for Christians. I'm going to question that by the scriptures. And her response is always, it's a work of sociology and history. Right? That's, it's, that's what I'm trying to put together. So the, the, there, there's kind of a, there's a rhythm to the book. Okay. The way almost every chapter works is this. She will bring up two to five historical figures some of whom could be called theologians. <clears throat> you know, for example, Billy Graham or Jerry Falwell might be considered a theologian. She then puts in there, puts, she then cites something that they said that was dumb, 
something dumb that they did um, or something nefarious that they did. The nefarious part, that's more suggestive than accusatory. But there's generally something, there's something negative put on that person, always towards um, defending her thesis of uh, even, you know, white evangelicals corrupting politics or of a, an increase of, um, you know, patriarchal chauvinism or something like that. So the, the, the theology comes in in that she will quote people who are ostensibly theologians. Um, but then she will also, as part of that, she will then bring in history and say, oh, and this is kind of how it plays out in history at mm. that time. You know, Jerry Falwell says X, then the moral majority does Y, then Ronald Reagan does Z, something like that. Well, we'll I'm just sure. giving that as one example, but yeah, yeah, every yeah. chapter pretty much follows that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so I would also say one of the, um, this is, this is part of the, what I will call maybe the uh, slippery part of the like logic of the book. It is written in a way that there is probably almost always going to be plausible deniability, right? Mm. Oh, I didn't say that this view was wrong. I just mentioned it, mm -hmm. but it's mentioned in a way, in a context that paints it in a bad light, whether or not it is a good thing. She clearly, from the way she writes it, um, is writing up certain beliefs within evangelicalism. Some, like David said, are like these crazy, horrible things that some people said or did. And then right alongside of it, will be things that are far more innocent or maybe even acceptable historic Christian beliefs. And they are put all together. So um, this is something I can get to. Um, if you want to do this now, I can. Um, I, I kind of put it at the end of all of my notes, kind of the the more like rhetorical, the, <laughs> the elements of this that I think make it uh, a work of propaganda. And like those elements that, you know, the way she frames certain ideas or, or the way she like implies things without ever maybe fully saying it so that you can always say, I didn't say that, right? I didn't use right. the words to say that's a bad thing or this is a good thing. But the way that she writes, it's very clear what she believes. So, so if there's an agenda being pushed, it's not so much, right, where people are like, hey, you're kind of attacking the beliefs of the church it, it it would not be what we'd call a frontal assault it would be it would be i'm gonna say a bunch of things that are gonna make you want to distance yourself from billy graham jerry yep. jerry falwell and yep. again not that any of these i'm not particularly attracted to any of these feature these figures but when it's like you know they had a you know i don't you know right whatever they had this really negative view or negative thing they said that was either dumb or nefarious or whatever also, they followed the Mike Pence rule, right? Like, and then when you, I got to yep. distance myself from, it's encouraging me to distance myself from probably a lot of things that actually do, uh, are related to evangelicals. Is it's that kind of what it would be? It's exactly that. That's, that's some of it, right? There, there okay. are several different ways that I would, sure. you know, that I would put it, but that's one of the ways that she clearly frames things in this way. And again, just to make clear that this is like a work of activism, not simply uh, a work of history or something like that. She ends the book that literally the end of the book um, ends with the phrase, what was once done might also be undone. She explains that like understanding these things is important to know how we got here so that an we can undo it all, right? Like, yeah. I mean, this is her purpose, she says at the end in writing the book, is to be able to undo 
basically what the you know religious right and these militant masculine Christian nationalists have done to That's everything, what, <laughs> the church when, and the when, nation. When I write a book of sh- sheer history, I say what was once done in the founding of a country can be undone, right? That, you're obviously <laughs> moving beyond history. So before we go further down this road, I mean, we, we've got to do it because you guys are doing a review. What is there? Uh, we'll start with David. What is there that's either positive uh, or right or something that is you at least you, we can agree with on on some level? Um, I, I was I've been thinking about that. It's kind of hard to, to put it to words. Sure, um, I'm sure it is. Um, now, I think the most positive things you can take from the book might be the things that she takes she puts forward as negative. In other words, it's, 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 it's one of those things where you can learn from people that don't like you, or you can learn from people who may not have your best in, you know, interest at heart. So one of the things that she does is I will give her, I will give her kudos on her cleverness. She does some mental Aikido or jujitsu or judo in that she's been in evangelical culture long enough to know that for a lot of evangelicals, there's always, you, they want to follow the figure. Like, mm-hmm. like you, you know, you talk about Mark Driscoll. How many people ended up leaving Christianity or just becoming like, you know, non-committal, non-attenders because Mark Driscoll, you know, his church went down in flames. Sure, yeah. And so by, by her tactic of, of always bringing up an evangelical leader and saying, look at the nasty thing this person did, look at the nasty thing they said, she can she doesn't have to directly critique evangelicals themselves or their beliefs, but she accomplishes the same purpose because she's taking down the heroes. Mm. She's, she's taking them down a notch. So one thing that I think evangelicals could really get is like, just don't do that. Yeah. Um, that's a great, point. Uh, you know, don't, you don't follow Mark Driscoll. You don't follow B- Billy Graham. You don't follow Jerry Falwell. Mm. Um, and, and of course uh, you, you want to say something generic, like you want to follow Jesus, but more concretely, you know, I think this is where having a solid confession, having a solid um, uh, beliefs on, on actual doctrine is, is what evangelicals need to um, emphasize, as opposed to what John MacArthur said or what, um, you know, whoever else said, said, said whatever. So yeah. that's, I think, a, a real positive. For, yeah, I for, think to that's take true. Away. That is a really good point. And I think is a really helpful point, because even if you think about how evangelicals have done theology where they tried to do that. It was like, use Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. And everyone's like, that's a great idea. What's the problem with that? It's still a theology written by a guy, right? No matter how good or bad you think he is, it's still like you're saying, David, it's what Wayne Grudem said. And that's not, that's not theology because now when you have questions about things, Wayne Grudem says, now you go, well, what do I think about everything else? Right. You, you begin to question it, but if you have that, as you're saying, these objective doctrinal creedal statements, that's much better. Michael, what were you going to add about that? Yeah, well, it's just, it's just true. Um, so when we, uh, when you peg yourself to one person, uh, the reality is that people are sinful and they're going to do sinful things. And, mm. um, so that, that comes across very clearly in the book. I would say that like, this is, uh, an area that, Uh, you know, it makes it a a compelling work in the sense of like, it could, this could make it a very uh, like uh, compelling book. 
if you simply read it as like, here are a bunch of examples of really like popular evangelicals doing stupid things uh, or like wicked things, right? Being caught in sex scandals or, or what have you, um, or, you know, Christian organizations growing to massive sizes where they are doing hundreds of millions of dollars in sales every year. And like, nobody's like, Hey, maybe this is going to cause problems for us. Not just be good. Um, you know, like that she, she has plenty of examples of bad things that have been done by evangelical leaders over the course of the last, you know, 60 years. And so when you see those things, it is a good reason to remember, Hey, your faith shouldn't be based on one person. Um, you should, you know, question things. Um, you should focus far more on like, you know, uh, personal piety in a, a local church that you can serve in with a clear confession of beliefs rather than, Hey, there's this guy, uh, you know, that I am going to follow. There's this, you know, this guy, Jerry Falwell that I see on the TV and he's like my guy, right? This Billy Graham, he's my guy, this, you know, this Ted Haggard, he's like, you know, he's really what's good, right? Like he's, he's what's good about the oh, church. Man, we well, get then Ted when, Haggard bad. Huh? Oh, oh, yeah. oh, wow. Yep. Oh man. Uh, you know, <laughs> like when, when you have this guy and you're like, wow, he's, he's amazing. He's my guy. And then you find out that he was seeing male prostitutes. Like yeah, it's like, okay, gonna... well, like your whole faith is gone because your faith was not in uh, the yeah. truth of, of what is revealed in scripture about who God is and what yeah. Christ has done. It is in uh, a guy, you know? Yeah. I, I can't just, I can't think of a single evangelical scandal of the past 60 years that did not show up in the book. Wow. They're, yeah. they're yeah. all there. Yeah, yeah, all the for sure, all good. of the major the major events, and even some of the more minor things, right? Like even even yeah. some of the more minor things were there. Now, let me say, uh, like this is again one of those areas that I think becomes an element of of a kind of propaganda, uh, because if you just read this, you're like, man, evangelicals are the worst. And if you compare this to simply like the political scales of like political leaders on both left and right, you know, Republican, Democrat, doesn't matter who, you would see that actually this is a pretty small list that you could fit it in, you know, uh, this size of a book. Um, and even all the names that are mentioned are not necessarily people that were involved in scandal. Um, again, we'll maybe get to some examples of where she lists people alongside each other who really should not be listed alongside of each other. Um, but like when you hear these things, uh, you know, maybe it's just because I'm insulated and in completely different circles, but I'm like, oh man, yeah, like a lot of these people, uh, they were they were hugely popular for a while, but you know, I don't uh, I don't see you know continuing popularity in these circles. Um, I see some healthy response of at least some uh, you know what I would consider evangelicals saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this hero worship stuff. Um, but I, I don't know. Hey, I, I've got some other things too. Yeah. What else is positive to, that Michael. I think is positive maybe with the hero worship, she does point out um, some problems that clearly uh, arose with the, the overlap of uh, evangelical belief and uh, their belief about the role of the civil government. You know, so like the, what I would call like Christian state worship, this kind of, you know, focus on, politics that was, I think, overall pretty negative uh, because it was it was everything, you know, like so the faith became intertwined 
with a particular way of doing politics, so much so that, you know, the evangelical church becomes a major voting bloc. Now, even when I say that, if you read the book carefully, you'll find that even she says, actually, they didn't play that major of a role in electing any of these presidents or, you know, like actually doing any of the things that she kind of criticizes them for being a part of. Um, however, it does point out the reality that people were, I mean, people, people got themselves entangled in uh, the, you know, civil government in a way that it was like, you know, this pastor instead of preaching on Sunday is talking about who you should be voting for or the kinds of like political activism you should be doing. That's a problem, you know, like that's a, that's a problem that we see. And we talk about a lot today, um, even on our podcast for a, maybe a more like progressive side of things, right. A social justice, uh, social, social justice bent. Um, this is something that was happening from maybe a more uh, conservative point of view. And we should own that. We should recognize that and say, yep, that was not, uh, overall helpful. Okay. Before we go to perhaps what everyone is most excited about from Pastor Michael's Good, Bad, and the Ugly, though unfortunately not a John Wayne film. Uh, in I know the right I, couldn't, genre. I couldn't find right. I couldn't think of a good like name for a review that would also be a John Wayne film. So, um, is there anything else um, positive or agreeable? I do think. I think it would be an interesting way to read the book, as David said, though, as a, as a strict like, okay, what you don't like, let me think about what I might learn from <laughs> there. Because, Michael, didn't you have the example of something about like, I, I think we recorded this in an episode where um, Lifeway was criticized for carrying a book by R.C. Sproul and a uh, convert to Christianity from Islam while they were while they were de-shelving whose book? I think it was Rachel Held Evans or Rachel Held Evans. Yeah. I think that's what it was. Yeah. And so how hypocritical that was. Right. Yeah. How could they do that now included in that also is like, uh, I think, is it Todd Starnes? Is that his name? Is that sure? Yeah. The so he wrote like Fox a pro Trump book that was in, you know, these bookstores at the same time. Um, and so it's like, yeah, okay. But here's where that framing comes in. And you're going to see this time and time again. It's look at all these things that are the same. You know, so how horrible of them to like delist this book about, you know, Christian feminism, um, while at the same time they carry this horrible Trump book and this book that talks about the problems within Islam from a Christian perspective. It's like, well, those are that's not the same thing. Uh, right. But the fact that you list them alongside each other as if they're the same thing, like that's that in itself is trying to it's trying to get you to believe something that is not necessarily the case. Um, that happens, you know, we did this uh, before too in the introduction. She just lists all these, you know, positions that evangelicals hold, um, such as being like, you know, there was, you know, they're more likely to support, I think it was like torture and, you know, like the death penalty as if those two things are on the same level. Well, one of those is commanded by God in the Bible, you know, whether or not you say that has to apply in the exact same way today, like you have to say, well, God commanded the one and the other has always been a sin and wrong, you know, no matter what. And so to, but to put them alongside each other, that tells you uh, that the author is trying to, to skew what you do, to skew how you react. Because what I'm going to do, what most people will do is say, oh no, like, like torture is bad. Oh no, like those people who were, who were uh, saying yes, even though we see all of the atrocities in the Vietnam war 
we think we should go even harder. You know, like we should just keep pushing. Um, this isn't that big of a deal. I'm going to say, oh man, that is a problem. And then you take that and flip it into, well, then you also have to see it being a problem that evangelicals believe that men should be strong and protect their families. Wait a minute. Like those are not the same thing. Uh, right. But if you're not careful, if you're not discerning, you might just jump right in and be like, I guess she's right that these things are bad. You know, I have to agree. Yeah. Yeah. So because we could do a, a very long review, we'll have to limit you guys to, to, to the negatives. David. Yeah. What is the bad? What is the, <laughs> I don't, and I, I know that might be the broadest question I could possibly ask. <laughs> it's, um, it's so hard. It is. It's, um, yeah. Uh, how can I? So, uh, the, the bad is, uh, although it's a historical and sociological account by her own admission, I don't, it, it is bad history. And I think mm. it is bad sociology. Interesting. And I think she, I think she inadvertently gets causality wrong. Huh. She puts, she makes the cause, the effect and the effect, the cause. Okay. Can you um, give us an example of that? That sounds interesting. Yeah. So uh, best, the, 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 the easiest example of that, let me think. Um, I just said it's obvious, so I should have one right on the tip of my tongue. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, she puts, so let's take, let's take the biggest ones, the biggest okay. one. White evangelicals fractured a nation. Mm. Okay. And so the, what, what's posited is that white evangelicals, this, this, this group of people, um, inject all of this controversy um, and all of this stuff into to national politics because they are from a position of power, okay? When in reality, the way I would read history is these people are reacting to a loss of power that they've already experienced. Mm. And... This is not, they're not trying to, they're not causing a change in the politics, a change in the power structures. The change in the power structure has caused them to lose power, has caused them to lose jobs, has caused them to lose influence. And these are people desperately trying to maintain a way of life and a faith. If we're going to, if we're going to bring faith into the evangelical stuff, yeah. um, to, not to, stuff, to that definition. So she reads it backwards. They didn't cause anything uh, and to a large degree things happened to them and that's what's being played out currently in politics that really is how i read the trump phenomenon yeah. trump was not trump was not pushed forward by evangelicals evangelicals were basically in a in a fit of desperation saying this guy is an outsider he might actually do something other different from the last five guys or gals that we voted for who did either nothing or the exact opposite of what they said. That's the Trump phenomenon. I, th I think that's a lot closer. I mean, we've said it between ourselves. We've said it on the show, David. You obviously know evangelicals. My experience is pretty much all evangelicals were pretty reluctant to vote for him, but said on some reasoning close to you. Now, obviously, there's Trump culty people out there that, you know, do believe things that are a little bit crazy. But, I mean, is that your experience? You're in a very different place than us. Is You're in the South, so maybe it is different. Is the experience there similar that it's a, it's a, there are certain things about him that make you, that made people reluctant, but for the reasons you're describing, we've got to do something kind of an ideal? 
Yeah. So, I mean, I see, I put, I put them into, I've seen like four types of Trump voters. Okay. One is just people who would just pull Republican lever. Sure. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Yep. Trump's Republican. Got it. So that's one. Two would be the people who reluctantly said, I want, I want something different. He's different. Yes. He's crass. Yes. He's crude. Yes. He doesn't support my values or he doesn't live my values, but I'm going to vote for him anyway, because nobody else does either. Yep. There's a third group of people I'm going to call the trolls. They're mostly like sure. that second group, but they just like to, to get uh, hot takes on Twitter and they like to rub it in the noses of, of you know, they're, they're, this is the own the libs crowd. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the crazies and they're the smallest right. by far population. The first three is the vast majority of people who voted for yeah. Trump and that's the vast majority of people I've seen. Okay, yeah. And I actually think this this problem you're describing, obviously if her thesis is that white evangelicals fractured the nation and if you're saying, Hey, they're actually reacting to a fractured nation. And even if you can posit negative examples of them reacting to that, that's fine, right? They probably did react negatively sometimes because as you put it earlier, there are sinners in the church. They, wow, things were going wrong in their life and in country and potentially even in their churches. And they also handled it poorly sometimes. That's not a shock, right? That's not... You know, that's not a very noteworthy thing because it would be hard to 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 identify any affinity group in America that hasn't handled the fracturing we're all experiencing in a negative way, at least sometimes. Michael, yeah, I mean, especially, oh, yeah, especially, a group, especially a group that that can that feels desperation. Yeah, um, that, that's, that's another noteworthy thing. Yeah, I mean, I, I and this is where um, when she singles out white evangelicals, I have to wonder is there any other group that feels desperate that she would feel comfortable doing this, this kind of a book on? Yeah. My, my guess is no. Mm -hmm. This, this is, this is the point, And I've said it before. This is the, this is the sympathy I have for these people, right? When, when Michael and I have seen some of these rallies that, that have kind of charismatic or really out there speakers or, you know, these kinds blow it, of blowing the show far. <laughs> Blow it, blow the show. Oh, that that was that was the worst. Blow the show far to save the election. Yeah, it didn't work, by the way. (laughs) It didn't work. If if you thought that was going to work, hey, it didn't work. And this is a wake up call for you. Yeah, it's a great reason to not uh, trust in the show far anymore. Yeah. But what I think is when I see that, obviously, there are things to be laughed at. Um, obviously it's, it's wrong. It's misguided. It's foolish, but I think you're right. This is the only group where it's like, we have no reason to have sympathy for people. And what I see is these are sheep without a shepherd. And in fact, the people who could shepherd them, call them, they're the worst. They're the problem. They are, um, right. That this kind of view you're talking about, these are people who, who actually need shepherding and what, and they're not getting it. And so they find Shofar Man and uh, all of his friends, you know, willing to kind of fill in that gap. And obviously, not well, not well. Yeah, that's actually interesting. So that, uh, one of the things that I noticed in the book, um, there were certain points where um, I specifically thought it uh, when she was speaking about uh, James Dobson. So Dobson mm-hmm. figures pretty prominently in the book. Um, and it was interesting to see how, you know, uh, right alongside the like serious breakdown in 
the family that was happening culturally and societally. She points out that all of a sudden, you know, in this new time, um, she doesn't point necessarily to the breakdown in the family as causing this, but I thought that um, all of a sudden this guy, James Dobson becomes really popular for sharing things like, Hey, this is how you discipline your children. This is how you like help your children. If they're having trouble in school, this is like, some, this is how you talk to your children about sex. This is, it's all these things that like in probably a healthy society, you just get from being around and being raised by, you know, parents who train you and your grandparents who are around and you're like raising your kids around them and they help you. And like, there's a, the, with the breakdown in community in our country, which happened both in and outside of the church, all of a sudden what people desire, uh, becomes different. Like what, what they, uh, where they can find leaders is no longer like in my local church because the community in that region is, you know, broken down mm. to such an extent that they just don't normally do that, but they are watching the TV. And so these yeah. guys that come on, they're naturally going to, uh, you know, uh, have some authority in how they speak because they're the ones that are actually speaking to them. They're right there. They're, you know, they're present in the home in a sense, uh, yeah. in a way that others are not. And I'm not saying that that's all good. It's just that that is the, like the actual, like, I think interesting reason why some of these people became really prominent and why, when they start talking about issues of, of gender, you know, it becomes this, uh, you know, she very much reads into the motives of people that they, like there was this deep insecurity about their masculinity. And so a lot of men within the church began to overcompensate by, you know, uh, proclaiming these truths about what masculinity was that for s somehow she doesn't talk about, you know, what happened before the cold war or before, you know, and she really starts around just after world war two. Um, but like, which is when the evangelicals rose up, right? Like that is yeah, the rise. Right, exactly. Of modern American evangelicals for sure. Exactly. Yeah. So it makes sense that she might start there talking about evangelicals, but it, it does make it sound like, you know, before this Christians were all egalitarian and before, you know, the end of world war two, there were like so many like female CEOs and women were serving in the military. And then all of a sudden the evangelicals came along and said, these are all like really bad things um, that shouldn't happen anymore. And that was a reaction from insecure men um, but that's wow. obviously not at all what was so, true. This this is this is important because I think so. The negative point David brought up is devastating to the thesis of of the book, right? If if the causality is reversed, this this thesis just fails. Michael is bringing up the negative thing that when we heard this interview on the rise and fall of Mars Hill, I literally couldn't believe what I was hearing that during the Cold War the ideal of the protective male rose up. And I was like, who wrote this and thinks this? And I realized it was Jesus and John Wayne. Yeah, so is it's it, a whole book. Is it really presented? <laughs> and I'm going to just talk to you. Is this, both of you, is this real? Is this, I mean, is that really the point? That the, that the, these ideas of masculinity are 1950. Because the idea of a man as a protector, I, I don't even know how to help you if you've read classical literature or, you know, just go to pick any time period and read a major work from it and you will, you'll find this idea. And again, I'm not saying that all of them are good, not that they're all good versions of this. Um, 
I mean, this is as close to like natural theology as you get a belief held by all people in all times and all places. Right. We're, we're as close to that as we can get with this, but, but is this, yeah. Why don't you, this, you bring this up. So Michael, David, what is this? What does she think is unique? And, and this is obviously probably a bad thing. What is she trying to get at with this idea of masculinity? In the yeah. Book? So, I mean, this is obviously, this is, you know, part of the thesis, right? This is the, the problem of militant masculinity that rises up and becomes dominant. And the idea of the patriarchy that's tied to, you know, white Christian nationalism. And all these words are all kind of, they're all basically operating as synonyms um, with slight, you know, variation throughout the book. Uh, but uh, one of the pro- primary uh, issues, one of the biggest, you know, bad things in our category of bad <laughs> in this book uh, is the view, the clear view that comes across of uh, gender, of men and women and, you know, what uh, men, and, men and women are and what they look like. Now, again, one of the things that I would say is that, like, she has plenty of examples of really stupid ham-fisted things that people have said about the roles of men and women, you know, over the last 60 years. There's some really bad things out there, okay? Um, and almost everybody that she quotes, um, you know, I have quotes from, you know, all these people, you know, she quotes, uh, you know, pretty heavily from, again, uh, you know, in this area, Dobson. Um, she quotes a lot from John Eldridge. Um, she quotes some from uh, Doug Wilson. She uh, quotes from all kinds of different people. Um, and half of the quotes, I'm like, this is actually just pretty standard historic Christian understanding, natural understanding of the roles of men and women. Um, And then the other half, it's like, oh yeah, that was a really stupid thing to say or a stupid way to say it. Uh, And so it's it's not as though it's just straightforward uh, and obvious all the time, but she clearly uh, has a, a negative view of what we would simply say is the historic belief um, that, uh, you know, men are, you know, made to be in a position of authority, um, in the home, in the church, uh, in a way that women are not, that men are, uh, made to do things like, uh, you know, uh, be, uh, to like go to war, like fight, right. To protect like these, these ideas. Um, she very often throughout the book brings up, you know, again, in context of, here are some of these crazy bad things that these people have said. She brings up how negative some of these people were about women serving in the military, mm-hmm. right? How, how it was this like, you know, really uh, like kind of wild thing that evangelicals would be so up in arms about wanting to allow women to join the military. Um, and, you know, she points out that like the, you know, the Center for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, they come out with this statement about, Um, why women shouldn't serve in the military and how that's just this, like, it's painted as this really negative thing. Again, that we would just say historically, like the historic Christian view on this is clear, it's obvious, and it would be in full agreement to that. Like it's, it's a tragedy if women are uh, serving in the military. It's just the corollary of put the women and children in the lifeboats first. That's all that is. That's all that is, is as a is that so david tell us about the this in my mind a historical kind of analysis of of gender or or yeah just what this yeah. what she's getting at with this stuff yeah so the only way you can you can make the case that this that this uh bad complementarian bad gender stuff started in the cold war 
is by again by reading history poorly. So what you will notice throughout the book, as the as the book progresses, you see more and more people citing more and more things that she can paint as as negative uh, or not egalitarian. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, why didn't the people at the beginning of the book talk about that? Because the traditional gender roles were both accepted and acceptable, and they felt no need to do it. So, of course, Billy Graham in the 1940s and 50s doesn't talk much about it. Sure. Of course, Doug Wilson talks more about it in the 2000s. So what, what you've seen is not, a, you, you haven't seen a people that has become more militant, I don't think. You've seen a people that has tried to maintain prior beliefs and, right. and, and, and prior roles. Not, and, you know, and so that's, there's a divergence for sure, but it's not, it's, there's not, the evangelicals are not causing it. Yeah. It's a reaction to what's going on. Yeah, think- and and this comes out time and time again uh, that again she is not uh, operating from like a neutral uh, playing field. Um, so I just want to give like a, a couple of examples um, that are just you know seemingly like innocent on their face, but like when you actually look at it, you're like, oh, this is actually uh, you know uh, problematic. At one point, she she quotes she's talking about um, the different ways that more. Uh, conservative politically people, um, you know, being led by guys like James Dobson and others uh, might view the role of a parent uh, versus those who are more liberal. And uh, she says, uh, whereas liberals favor a nurturing parent model, conservatives embrace a strict father metaphor for their parenting. Even in that line, do you hear that? Like, she can't bring herself to say mother uh, for like the more caring uh, the more nurturing, so they, a, a nurturing parent role. Uh, whereas like, you know, what, you know, the conservatives want is a, this, you know, harsh, uh, father role. Um, she speaks about the, the, uh, conservative resurgence in the SBC and kind of the history of the SBC. She makes it sound by the way, like, uh, you know, the SBC was, uh, conservative and evangelical and, you know, then this like, resurgence was actually this kind of militant masculine christian nationalist like wing kind of taking over rather than that the denomination had slid into a much more kind of theologically progressive position and was now coming out of that um and i don't have uh i'm i'm looking for the quote but she basically says at one point uh, she talks about kind of the two sides and how you know those on the conservative side had a very uh you know, literalistic and biblicist reading of the text. Whereas the women on the other side of the issue were uh, just simply trying to carefully exegete the, you know, whatever the the passages were rather than, you know, this uh, direct kind of literalism. So the way that she paints uh, these things here, I I think that I uh, uh, hopefully found, she said, these women insisted, talking about the specifically the women who were interpreting passages of the Bible in an egalitarian way and arguing within the SBC that there should be, uh, you know, female pastors. So this is the, you know, this is, again, this is going back to the conservative resurgence. This is as, you know, when Al Mohler um, kind of rose up in the SBC as kind of a voice for conservatives. And, and so he's brought into this as, you know, a, a part of that. Uh, But uh, she says, these women insisted on interpreting the biblical text contextually, attentive to the settings in which they were produced. Conservatives, however, insisted on a populist hermeneutic, a method privileging the simplest, most direct interpretation of scripture. For conservatives, this wasn't just the right method. It was also the masculine one. 
Okay, so what do you get there? That's not a neutral, like, hey, let me just tell the facts and the history. You're picking a side, right? You're saying, hey, on the one side, you had these careful exegesis of the text, which leads you to a feminist egalitarian reading. And on the other hand, you have this ham-fisted, dumb conservative, reactionary, we're just going to take it as simple as we possibly can. Um, And that's what you get. You get this, uh, you know, like Christian patriarchy instead. Because it's actually not very hard to like state those two sides in a more general way. No, it's easy. (laughs) Right. One side privileged the um, extra biblical scholarship done on the cultures of the people that would lead someone to say these things. The other side... Uh, you write privileged a direct um attempting to do a as direct of an application as possible from the text yep right like and i should I, that's uh, me in know, like five seconds coming right, up with yeah, a way no it's it's that simple but obviously again this is a work of activism it's yeah. it's a it's a deeply subversive work it is it is a piece of propaganda that's supposed to make you feel bad if you are a white evangelical and want to specifically vote in a certain way, honestly, like that's, it makes you like, it's supposed to make you want to vote in a certain way um, that you have not been and potentially, you know, think certain things about the roles of women in your church. Uh, But I just want to, this was one of my favorite quotes in the area of like, you know, the roles of men and women. And, you know, uh, there was a lot about like how you raise boys and how, you know, they were, you know, boys were being inculcated in these really like, militant virtues and she quotes this guy um, jack hiles who i don't know he was apparently a fundamentalist mega church pastor he sounded i think like not a great dude and you know what he believed maybe wasn't great Never so i'm not like him. defending him completely but one of the like really bad things that she pulls out that this guy said uh you know is that he uh quote bought his own son a pair of boxing gloves when he was five an air rifle at 13 and a 22 at 15 and, and I was wow. like, I honestly was just like, man, that sounds pretty reasonable. Um, like, I, Dang, uh, that, that poor kid must have not been responsible if he wasn't know, allowed to have a, a rifle, a rifle, 13. A rifle <laughs> at 15. Sorry, son, you don't get a real, you still can't have I a know. real gun. <laughs> I know. I was, I actually, uh, you know, my, my boys who are uh, six and four have already shot an air rifle. You know, they don't, they don't like carry it around without dad sure. yet, but yeah, uh, like that, it just sounded like there were things like this that, yes, are there ham-fisted ways to talk about the differences between men and women? Sure. Do people yep. fall into them all the time? Yep. That's like, of course. Uh, does that mean that uh, men and women are, you know, exactly the same, are interchangeable? Obviously not. You know, like that's, <laughs> that is uh, to go too far. Yeah. Uh, but this is a very, like, again, very common uh, trope. She, she paints in a bad light what would be simply historic Christian understandings of the roles of men and women, as well as just the, the nature of men and women, the differences between us. One of, one of the, the genius things about this thesis of this militant masculinity is any attack or criticism of this book is a proof of the thesis. Ah, you're attacking this book. Yep. Because you're yeah. you're a mili- you're defending militant masculinity, just yeah, like right. me, laboring to take apart a plastic playhouse in the street so I can I... get my kids home for dinner. Finally, <laughs> David, is there any is there any overarching like bad? I mean, we've we've talked about the history, we've talked about the exact backwards reading of the sociological causation. Is there any other bad you want to point out before we get to the ugly where 
I'll just ask you guys if you want to share one of the most wild, the most wild claims in it before we uh, let our people go. I'll just, uh, I just wanted to, come. if, if she, um, if she thinks uh, men and guns are the things that go together, she hasn't been to Texas. Um, <laughs> there's some ladies here that own more ammo and shoot more rounds than any, any dude I know. Um, <laughs> Probably more than me. Probably a lot more than me. I'm sure. <laughs> No, okay, sorry, sorry about joke over. Um, so you, and any other bad thing about the book? Um, I, I, I kind of have a hard time uh, knowing where the bad ends and the ugly begins. Sure, um, yeah, it is hard. Um, so I, I and I will say, so one of the things I, I will say that's bad is I think she should have known better. Mm. Um, okay, she comes so she so. She comes from Iowa. She's raised in Iowa. Right. Okay. That's not exactly light on evangelical influence. Okay. This is a people that I think she could have portrayed more compassionately or more fairly or more objective. You know, pick your adjective. Uh, I think she could have done that. And I also think that she, like the, the things that disproved her thesis were right under her nose. And I don't think that she actually um, wanted to see them. And, and you kind of see this bleeding through. Um, let me just quote something real quick from her introduction where I, I, I like she should have seen this bleeding through. Um, she's talking about this is the place where she goes back to. She sees the Trump rally in Iowa in, okay. uh, at, at Dort College in Sioux Center, her hometown. OK, she says, I'd grown up a short walk from campus on the other side of the old farmstead, only recently converted back to native prairie. Okay, so I'm going to be a good deconstructionist. I'm going to read at the margins here. So she should appreciate this. Okay. Why, why, is, why is that old farmstead converted back to prairie? Because that town is probably disintegrating. Because that town is no longer a thriving agricultural place. Like this town is, is, is dissipating before her eyes. But she doesn't even see that. Like maybe, maybe there's some connection between that old farmstead no longer being in use and Trump now being there. And again, like I said, I'm, I'm, I'm saying this sort of yeah, tongue-in-cheek, you know, no, no. but I, this is the kind of thing I think she should have been able to pick up on. Or yeah, that definitely will... shows up. I think that uh, one of the things that I find uh, a little bit gross about this kind of book is how it was, it comes across, especially in the introduction, as I can't believe those stupid rubes that I grew up around would vote for Trump. Like it's, it's just a throwing under the bus of your neighbors from when you grew up. Um, and honestly reads a little bit like, a, Hey, like, uh, you know, uh, liberal friends in, you know, in the Academy and in these urban centers, uh, please don't look down on me because I grew up around those people. Mm. And it's just like, it just comes across as gross. Like just, you know, um, it, it would take very little for you to understand why somebody, why a majority of people in a place like Iowa might feel more comfortable voting for Donald Trump than Hillary Clinton. It, like that, it would take so little empathy. These people are all about empathy. Use a little bit of empathy, right? You don't, you don't have to be all about Trump. I actively try to convince people not to vote for Trump. And, 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 I was, and you don't I was have to successful, vote for Trump either. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. like, and, like in 2016, um, I did end up voting for him when he lost. <laughs> so I don't know if that's, I, I don't know if it was on me, but Even uh, like worse. I, so I wasn't like super like, Hey, like everything has to be about Trump, but it would take zero, <laughs> like not zero, just the tiniest, like tiniest little sliver of empathy 
to understand why these people would feel the way that they did. Mm -hmm. And instead you're like, there is no uh, way to explain how they voted for Trump, except to say that there have been these deeply nefarious beliefs about making women these slaves in a way to male desire and uh, making those of a different ethnic background, um, those who are now going to be under my boot and all these like all these like nefarious, so, I'm going to take power over you motivations. The, the, for better or worse, the stereotype of who Trump is, that he marries yep, supermodels right. because he's a servant. And again, I there's truth to these stereotypes and there's a lot of it that's overplayed, that he marries supermodels yep. because he is controlled by base desires and he doesn't like foreigners, right? Like that's, but what is interesting, even again, David, and what you said was, look at this look at this farmhouse because let's say that farmland is still being used well it's actually not being used by whatever family used to do that so even if it is even if even if the community is healthy uh having friends in Iowa, sioux city lovers if you want to you guys can clap back at david you can send them your if if sioux city is a beautiful place but what it regardless gets at is hey that something in the last 50 years and maybe even less time if she if this is her living memory, something in that community has been transformed. And that's reflective of almost especially all small towns across the Midwest and in lots of yeah. places in the South. Yeah. And I'm sure, like you said, they can clap back. They can tell me that this was a, a world successful environmental reclamation project. And I'll concede the point. Fine. Sure. This in this one case, you're right. But the, the examples of where that is the case in, in, in the small towns throughout the upper Midwest, the South, the Midwest are legion. You do not have to look far to find them. Yeah. So this, this has gotten to the ugly. I will say the one thing it causes me to do is our show is critical of backgrounds we come from. And I do not want to get to this point where I have no love for the people I come from. Oh. And we actively try, right? We want to, like, this is why we always say we want to try to have gratitude, even where we go, cross the line into the place where we are, we are complaining too much or we're, we're maybe being uh, more unfair than we should be. We want to have some kind of gratitude, which is why we even start a review like this and saying, hey, there's more good. I've got multiple pages of things that I listed under, hey, these are things that I actually think are positive or good about this book. But that's not where we're going now. Pat. No, it's so not. Now we're going to, <laughs> we're going to spend the last couple minutes. You guys can just, uh, entertain me with the ugly or what is just the yeah either the either whether is beyond belief be you know whatever whatever you define ugly however you choose and share some of the yeah one one correction um people from sioux city i'm sure can call in and you but it's actually sioux center oh so i said my mistake so my mea culpa i (laughs) sorry everyone we didn't we didn't (laughs) mean to throw you under the bus Uh, So I want to take two kind of primary um, elements of what I would think of as the ugly. And for the, for me, the ugly is that again, this is a subversive work of propaganda. It is not history. Um, And maybe I, I I want, I want Brad to come on and defend, uh, you know, a good view of sociology sometime because I just I'm tending to just see sociology as that, <laughs> as like uh, a subversive propaganda. So, Brad, you can uh, dissuade me from that uh, sometime if you would like. Uh, but the so two two main things that I want to cover. 
Number one is what I would refer to as the framing. And I've already brought this up uh, with a few points. Um, and second is what I'm going to call conspiracy theory hermeneutics. Uh, so first, like with framing, again, she makes lists of things or puts things alongside of each other that do not belong in the same category. Um, this is maybe due to just a trying to simplify things, right? So sometimes we, you know, everybody does this where we try to simplify things and whether uh, for good or ill um, in a way that it, it meshes categories that do not belong together. Uh, but she does so in a way that I think is unconscionable, honestly. Um, so let me give two uh, maybe primary examples. So one is where she is trying to point out those who have been known for abuses of power within the church. And so she makes a list of people and what they've done. And this is near the end of the book. I want to say it was the last chapter where most of the book is look at all these people that have abused power. Look at all these people in the church involved in sexual abuse. Look at all these, you know, it just is lists of like some of the horrible things that a lot of the people she's named up to this point throughout the book have done. Um, so she, you know, for instance, she brings up, uh, you know, lo and behold, Mark Driscoll and the, you know, kind of uh, toppling of Mars Hill and the fact that so many, uh, you know, uh, around him did not take responsibility. But men like John Piper said, I have no regrets. And Wilson, uh, Doug Wilson said that he still liked uh, Mark Driscoll after this all happened. And, and so like, okay, like, here's a, you know, one of these uh, situations. Um, it interesting to note, by the way, she quotes, uh, Ed Stetzer in a favorable light as trying to persuade people not to vote for Trump, making a last, she, she uses the phrase that he made a last ditch effort to try to convince people not to sell their souls in a vote for Donald Trump. So he's painted in a good light. Doesn't mention him when talking about those who supported Mark Driscoll, but whatever. And, and, <laughs> and Ed Stetzer, just to be clear, is not a government asset, everyone, just yeah. <laughs> to, so I can make that clear every time we talk about him. We, we want to make that absolutely clear. Uh, we'd love to have you on the show, uh, Mr. Setzer. Uh, <laughs> I, I would have one pretty direct question. Yeah. <laughs> perhaps about government. If you are a government <laughs> agent. Uh, so Mark Driscoll, she mentions uh, C.J. Mahaney and everything that went down with him and, and his church and what seems from the outside as possibly, you know, some kind of cover up of abuse. Again, is that what happened? I, I don't know, but that's what she quotes. Um, she lists Darren Patrick, who was removed from his church for domineering and manipulative leadership. Then at the end of this list of those who had used their power to uh, abuse, she throws in John MacArthur. And the reason she puts in John MacArthur is because his school was written up by their accrediting agency um, for having not put into place certain practices um, that would fit with some kind of law that was called like the Protection of Women Act or something like that. Um, now, that's really all it says, right? It doesn't say a lot. It just says this accrediting agency wrote up the school that's under him. Number one, that's a little bit different, right? Obviously, he's got ties to it. I'm not going to fully defend it because I don't know the full situation. Uh, but like, this is one of those things that it would be very easy to see how an accrediting agency, which very often skew in a more progressive direction, uh, are trying to get the school to put into place some kind of uh, you know, policy directed by uh, some kind of California law that, you know, what kind of discrimination laws do you think come out of California? Are they all good? No, they're like, they're not. So again, this is, it's not to say that, you know, John MacArthur has done no wrong. It's to say that when you put that in the same category 
as these people that have been removed from ministry or a church have their churches implode, that just, it skews weird, right? Like it's, it's framing it in a, in a different light. Now, what I think is even worse is she begins uh, talking about those who uh, were directly involved in sexual abuse or very clear sexual abuse cover-ups. She mentioned, yeah, you know, chapter. this is all the same thing. Yeah, it is. It's all, wow. It's all all the same list. It's all the same. It's all the same list. And it's horrifying. Right. So again, just to go back to uh, like, you know, where we might say there's something to learn from this book. Um, This was happening a lot. And it's like, it's frightening to see some of these really well-known names who were involved in some of these cover-ups. Right. So this is, you know, she puts in, um, you know, Bill Gothard and uh, you know, some of the stuff that he did or covered up Um, the Duggar family. I want to say that there were other, I can't remember the, the guy, the vision forum guy, um, Doug Phillips. Uh, so, you know, uh, him and like, so she puts these, this list of people who did like actually perpetrated sexual abuse. And then alongside of that list, she includes John Piper for one time during an ask John, when he was asked how long a woman should stay, uh, in a, in a marriage when the man is like becoming more abusive. And he said something that was maybe stupid um, where he said something to the effect of, and again, this is, this is where you'll do the quotes where it's like, here's a partial quote, dot, 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 ellipses. Here's another part of the quote. So I don't know the full context, um, but he said something to the effect of, you know, what she quotes, uh, you know, maybe you should stay for some harsh words, you know, put up with some harsh words. You know, if he like smacks you around a little bit, like, you know, eventually, obviously you go get help, but like, in the context, my guess is John Piper is trying to say, we want to find a way to preserve this marriage, right? To, to heal this marriage, to help this marriage, to not allow it to end in divorce. He maybe said something in a really like an unhelpful way in a, like in a public setting that wasn't ideal, but he is listed among those who personally perpetrated abuse or cover up of sexual abuse. Sure. That is like, that is not the same thing. But of course, you have to do that because you're trying to tie every all of these things that have gone before as if they're one in the same with that same uh, like complementarian evangelical leadership today. They're all the same. That's what she's trying to say. Right. Mm. And so it's just like there there are so many examples of that kind of framing. So I'll let you react to that. And then I want to talk about the conspiracy theory hermeneutics as well. So, yeah, David, what do you think about that? Any or at least add, if you want to add your own, uh, an ugly thing to it before Pastor Michael gets to conspiracy theories. Yeah. So, I mean, like to, to me, one of the more ugly things of the book is um, in some sense, this is, this book is kind of an apologetic, not an apologetic. I don't, I don't want to, I don't make it too strong. Um, it's, it's, I don't want to, I'm trying to say this in the most tactful way possible so that I don't get in trouble. We appreciate um, it. <laughs> um, in the end, I think the reader is left to feel unsympathetic and un- uncaring for evangelicals. Okay. And if you think about it, that's a pretty ugly thing for a book to do, to point at a group of people and say, these people are pretty bad. In some sense, they've gotten what they've deserved. And we can explain the bad things that happen to them by their bad behavior. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I guess, you know, you can bring up a story, you know, okay, you know, nobody's going to shed a tear over the Nazis. Um, you know, you can bring up the obvious historical examples of people that uniformly behaved badly. Um, 
although I'm sure there's some Germans who, you know, were forced along. I'm not going to defend that. Um, but yeah, it, it, you, you kind of get the feeling that, yeah, these people, like, they, they get what's coming to them. What what they what what happens to them is kind of deserved. Um, now I don't know that she feels that. I don't know that that's her intention. But that's that's kind of what you get left with at the end. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah it absolutely well, comes across that way. Because guess guess what? Here's the harsh reality. Hey, Trump voters need Jesus too. I mean, right? If we're if we're really if I'm doing a biblical analysis, maybe they did. Let let me grant. They did a lot of things wrong. Let me grant they have what's coming to them. Let me grant they're causing all the problems. And obviously we shouldn't grant any of those things based on the, the hour-long conversation we've had. But even if I did, the answer is Trump voters need Jesus too. Um, and even if they think, and even the idea that they have a form of religion that would be problematic would not prevent us from thinking that way. Um, but that that is where it, that is what it is right at the at the end of the day and and trying to create a distance from that is yeah is ugly you're right so michael tell us about why this book is and now tgc has warned me a lot about conspiracy theories and anyone who propagates them and so i'm really concerned about this as well so tell me why this (laughs) why this is conspiratorial yes i am also against wrong thing (laughs) Thank you, DGC. Yep. Uh, so uh, what I mean by conspiracy theory hermeneutics, you've like I've I've spent some time going down conspiracy theory rabbit holes because I find them fascinating. Um, what you find within conspiracy theories, like actual conspiracy theories, right? So you think about like the flat earth conspiracy theory, right? This is it is on its face absurd. You know, like it's sure. uh, you just ask the question, who benefits from this? <laughs> right. Right. Who's who's like, you know, what who's making money? What I don't even get, you know, flat earth homeschool families. We love you. You can keep yeah. listening to the show with your family. I, like there are conspiracies that like I'm willing to say that might have some credibility. Uh, there are conspiracies that have turned out to be true. Uh, there are some that it's like, I don't even get why this would like, I don't get why this would matter, I guess. Right. Uh, but uh, when you uh, you know listen to any of these people that are going down this conspiracy theory rabbit hole, right? You you choose an idea, and then you have to fit evidence into it. And how you do that is you connect unrelated things, um, or or you connect things that uh, you can you can draw a line to and from. Uh, but there are plenty of other explanations for why you might be able to draw that line um, rather than just like, obviously they prove this, you know, this, they come out of this particular point. So, you know, I don't know, maybe an example, um, you know, if it's like, it's like a pattern recognition thing, right? So, you know, if every day that I see Matt come into the church and he's wearing a black t-shirt, something bad happened to me, you know, if I start saying, well, like the reason something bad happens to me is because Matt comes in with this black shirt on, like he must be doing something nefarious because it's always this, like this same thing that happens. This is just, it's just like, there are plenty of other reasons why these other things might've happened. And the thing about conspiracy theories, including Jesus and John Wayne, is that the real world is way more complicated than you chalk it up to be. There are so many other reasons for why things play out the way they do 
than what you can even categorize in something like this. This is why it's important when you read history, when you read sociology, when you read anything to read broadly, because um, you know, there's not one reason that the Roman Empire fell. Right? There, there are all kinds of different contingencies and, and individual people's stories that led up into like the big narrative. And like the world is complicated and people are complicated. It takes very little imagination to think of other reasons why some things might be connected. But what you have to do in order to prove a point when it's a conspiracy theory is connect things that might not otherwise uh, be connected. So there are a lot of sly moves that uh, are kind of made in order to do this, I think, in this book, because she set herself out to connect the ideas of this, like, you know, uh, white Christian nationalist patriarchy, like militant masculine kind of movement, right? Like all these things have to be connected. So you have to find a way to peg evangelicals in each of these categories. Let me give an example uh, of one. She talks about Phyllis Shafley. Phyllis Shafley was like a notable uh, Roman Catholic, popular, uh, you know, female Phyllis conservative. Schlafly, I believe. Schlafly, did I? Okay. I'm, yep, yep, sorry. I missed an L. Yep. Uh, so uh, Phyllis Schlafly, uh, I'm not going to say her name a lot because it's difficult. <laughs> uh, so she says a lot about uh, Phyllis, which is, you know, I mean, she was a popular conservative figure um, to, that spoke to evangelicals many times. But at one point she says this, listen to this. She says, in an era when race was increasingly discussed through coded language, her, talking about uh, Phyllis Schlafly, uh, her ideas were embraced by the same communities opposed to civil rights. Did you hear that, right? So like, there is, there is no direct, like, okay, here is what Phyllis Schlafly believed or taught. It's, look, the communities that believe these two things were overlapping. Now, there's no, obviously there's no footnote on that because how do you footnote that? Sure. Right? How do you prove that historically? You can't, right? There's no, there's no way to directly prove that. Now she continues, she says, uh, you know, uh, she quotes from uh, another, like some uh, uh, politician of the time, um, some uh, democratic politician, uh, saying uh, conservatives didn't talk about desegregation and busing, but they were clearly seething inside with anger, and that came uh, that came out with the Equal Rights Amendment. Hmm. Again, you're connecting things like you're you're making assumptions about personal intentions, and you you have to connect these things. You have to connect patriarchy with racism with these like evangelical like uh, personas. But you notice how they did that. These things are not naturally connected, but you have to find a way to do it. Another way that she did it, uh, I noticed this a handful of times throughout the book. She would use the phrase in this way, which I just made note of when I would find it because uh, it was a way to connect things that otherwise may not have been directly connected. So for instance, she talks about Bill Gothard and some of the stuff that he came up with and, and his, I don't know, he had, he had a lot of different things that he did, which were a mess, by the way, <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not going to defend Bill Gothard at all. Uh, but at one point, you know, she tries to connect uh, a lot of evangelical ideas of government to RJ Rushduni and the reconstructionist movement. Now, I was actually surprised with how much reconstructionists actually made it into some of these like 
inner circles of political like activists on the evangelical right. That was actually interesting to me because I thought they were a lot more obscure. And I still think they're more obscure than she makes them out to be. Um, I think she made them out to be much more influential than they actually were. But she would say something like, for instance, in this way, Gothard's philosophy built on the Christian deconstructionist teaching of Rushduni. In like, and she would do that by simply connecting either words or phrases or like similar concepts, right? Hey, we both believe that there should be an authority figure in the home. In this way, he built upon this previous foundation. Well, that's not necessarily building upon the same foundation. It's not necessarily that they're working together in some kind of concerted effort, right? There are plenty of other reasons why somebody might come to those conclusions. But again, when you start with that conspiracy theory, you have to fit all of these things together in a coherent pattern. Otherwise, it all falls apart. Um, the reality is that it's much more complicated. We can sit here and say, here are some of the bad things people said and did. Here are some of the good things. Here's some of that came directly from the Bible or Christian tradition. Here are some of the things that didn't, and there's sociological or cultural reasons why that might have happened. Here's all the many different reasons why maybe somebody would have voted for Trump instead of just these, like, it clearly came right out of their theological understanding of militant masculinity. You know, like, it, it takes very little empathy and very little imagination to get to that place. And again, this is why I say this is it's it's a subversive work. Um, it's a work of propaganda. I don't know if she believes these things. She probably does. That's you know, like this is a lot of it was typical talking points that you're going to hear uh, from what is the more kind of progressive element within uh, the Christian world right now that at least the you know, the kind of, you know, popular talking points. Uh, nonetheless, it still is subversive. It is still trying to get people to uh, agree to something that they otherwise wouldn't by appealing to the fact that a lot of these bad things took place. And look, maybe you don't want to be lumped in with these bad guys. So, so David, yeah. What do you think about this? This almost sounds like the causation you were talking about at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So like, let's take another obvious one where I, where I, I, I can give an example of where she draws lines that could be drawn in many alternate and, and equally convincing or, more, or even more convincing ways. So front and center, John Wayne. John Wayne makes surprisingly little appearances yep. in the book. Yeah. Really? Like it's really, yeah, it's, it, it's um, let me see if I can find it real quick. It, it, it's, it's really only one quote. Now I will, do you want me to just say it? There, there is, there is a, there's an off color word. It is, that is in the King James Bible, but um, well, we can we can do it. Okay, in the words of Baptist scholar Alan Bean, the unspoken mantra of post-war evangelicalism was simple: Jesus can save your soul, but John Wayne will save your ass. Okay, that's, that's one of the old. That's one of the only appearances that John Wayne makes in the book. Okay, wow. Now, do evangelicals like John Wayne? Probably. Okay, but is that because? evangelicals tend to live in the Midwest and the South and the upper Midwest and people that live there like John Wayne more than say New Yorkers or Seattle people living in Seattle do. I mean, there's a very simple alternate explanation yep. that might account for using John Wayne. However, he is used though. She doesn't really show his, the use of him that much in evangelical culture, evangelical speak, but just right there, maybe that accounts for, and, and, and I, I don't know, okay, I can already hear the accusation. Now you're, now you're devolving into whataboutism. Sure. But I'm not really, I'm not really, because I'm just saying like, okay, 
if we're going to have an explanation as to why John Wayne may or may not be popular among evangelicals, I can use religion to explain it. I can use geography to explain it. I can use occupation to explain it. Yep. You have, you have to give me evidence to, to, to choose for one or the other. And the book doesn't do that. It just draws the line. John Wayne, evangelical, masculinity, bam, done. Yeah. No, she actually, by the way, this is just a little uh, offshoot. She does literally use the phrase at one time, conservatives pounced, which I thought was <laughs> hilarious because that's a kind of common trope on conservative. Like, you know, uh, it's a conservative talking point that when, you know, liberals tell the story, they don't tell what actually happened. They talk about how conservatives pounce. They reacted in a way. Right. And so it's just funny to hear her actually use that phrase. But wow. so John Wayne, yeah, there's no substantive way that John Wayne shows up at all. Um, John Wayne, she quotes, she somehow found several different quotes from some of these, you know, some of these people, I think Phyllis Schlafly and, you know, for sure, Ronald Reagan talking about him and like several people that talk about neither, John neither of them are evangelical, neither of them are evangelical. No, yeah, I don't think, right. I don't think they were. And so people use the name John Wayne, like just talking, which is like, yeah, like when you have all these like sermons and and like speeches and things like that. And John Wayne is one of the most popular people in the country. I'm thinking of a cowboy. Yeah, right. John it's Wayne. Just, so yeah. it's, there's no substantive way. It's just that John Wayne becomes a picture of like rugged masculine patriotism that she then ties to basically this is what, uh, you know, evangelicals believe too, right? Like they believed that is the ideal model for what a man should be. Um, and so it, you know, that's, that's what it was. It wasn't substantive though. Again, you see that this is a conspiracy theory kind of hermeneutic, right? It ties things together that there's plenty of other reasons for. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And it, I just point out, like you said, if she can't find an evangelical saying it, she will find a, a person evangelicals like and say good enough. Right. Okay. Like, 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 like here's another thing, like most of the uh, modern American political conservatism, the stuff that comes out of National Review, evangelicals were not there. They're latecomers to that party. Yep. That's mostly Roman Catholic and Jewish thought. And that's an, and I'm, I'm not saying that it makes it good or bad. It, it, those are just the people that were there. So when you get Phyllis Schlafly, when you get these early conservatives, they're almost to a man and woman, not evangelical, but evangelicals will later come to appreciate them. And therefore we can baptize what they said as evangelical. Mm -hmm. yeah. Sure. You know, this... If you want more on this, David's a completely right. Aaron Wren covers yeah, the, the history of the conservative movement. It's inarguable. I was going to bring that up. Yep. Yeah, it's inarguable what David is saying about this. And, and because we have traditionally, and even if evangelicals couldn't always articulate this, we have an idea of a two kingdoms where if there's a group of people who can oppose abortion with us in our community, it is okay in certain ways to partner with them. Now, what I think is really interesting about this, when I think about John Wayne, right, and I think we said this when we, in just a promo of this, I never heard about John Wayne in church <laughs> growing up. That had nothing to do with my spirituality, who I was supposed to be as a man at all. And if that if that happened to you, I, actually, it's, to be honest, not the worst thing. Obviously, John Wayne was not a believer and did not really exhibit christian virtue whatever but it's worse things have happened to people is what i'm saying is even if that was imposed on you you know who loved john wayne in my life my grandmas i'm just wondering if 
if the actual affinity people had of John Wayne's is is from like 1940 to like 1980, westerns were just really popular in America, and so it was just popular. It was just a <laughs> it, like it wasn't a, a you know it, it's it wasn't an evangelical thing. It was just a thing, and it now looks a little bit strange to us because for whatever reason, I mean, just like superhero movies weren't popular then, westerns aren't popular now right and so it it's you know that again that's me drawing a different line but i had a a roman catholic grandmother and a a grandmother who later in life uh converted to a form of evangelical christianity they both love john wayne yep (laughs) i don't know what that says about them but it does it just seemed like he was popular and i should say by the way i've like i've actually watched several westerns since reading this book in part because i was like i should watch some of these (laughs) Uh, so this is how I want to end. Okay. I don't think we should end on just a negative note. Uh, so I ended all of my notes with five things that I feel like I've learned from okay. this book. And this is oh. where I would like to end. And I want your reaction, your thoughts about okay. each of these five. Uh, so here are my five, five things that I learned from Jesus and John Wayne. Number one, uh, there were a lot of really prominent women in the patriarchy movement, evidently. Okay. This like there were there were, you know, tons of very prominent, well-known like women who were a part of this movement that was apparently like unbelievably harsh toward women. Hmm. So I don't know what you want to do with that, but it's something that I learned. Yeah, I, I really want to know what you do with Maribel Morgan. Um, yeah, I, can, do we, do we talk, <laughs> let's just talk about Maribel Morgan. Do, you want, do you want, <laughs> let's do it. I think it. we should. I think so. I think what, what we should this? do is just we're just. Uh, we're just going to keep Maribel going and this Morgan. can be the review. We don't have to come back to this. We don't have to do an extra one and I will save my notes. And if we ever want to come back for a like patrons event or something, we can just like pull out a quote and discuss it because it's a lot of great material for later or a quick bonus episode or something. Sure. If we have I to go daily again, Morgan, we'll pull yeah. some out. I can describe Maribel Morgan in one sentence. All right. She is, she is the 1960s Mark Driscoll. Wow. <laughs> Wow. That's hilarious. That's really interesting. When, it, when so, it comes to sex, when it comes yeah, to sex. Yeah. So Maribel Morgan was apparently, I had never heard her name before, by the way. Me neither. Evidently she was very popular according to this, this book. Um, I don't remember how many book sales she had, but she lists how many book sales she had. This is a woman who was evidently in the evangelical world who wrote a book about what it looks like to be a good wife. Mm. So some of the things, by the way, she wrote um, that are listed again amongst the like kind of negative bad things were like seemed like not they're not like horrible, horrible things. They would they sound horrible today. You know, so she talks a lot about, hey, you should try to lose some weight and look nice for your husband. That's not the worst thing in the world to say. Right. I don't think that that's a horrible thing to say. Um, it's, you know, it, As it says be... in the song of songs. Is, right. that, where, <laughs> is that how it, the Driscoll connection? Came? Yeah, right. No, I, I don't know. She no, 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 it, it, she no, talks it, about practical a things. connection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She talks about practical things. Right. Like, hey, this is like some ideas for like healthy meal prep and like how to make sure you have like, you know, meals ready. Obviously, that sounds horrible to progressive ears for a, a wife that wants to like, you know, please her husband. Like I know plenty of women who like ask those kinds of questions, right? Like, oh, I wonder what a good, helpful way to like, you know, get dinner on the table at a reasonable time is. And like, while trying to balance all these other things, you know, that's, it's very reasonable. Now, (laughs) then all of a sudden, like 
it just seems like, you know, there's these things that seem, okay, they're not, they're kind of innocent, you know, maybe they sound horrible today. And then apparently she also had things like, you should be dressing up in a different sexy costume every day to meet your husband at the door. <laughs> that is expensive. <laughs> when, yeah, I was like, it was very clearly. So apparently a bunch of, what was it? It was, I think it was the Miami Dolphins, apparently. Uh, it was, I think it was the Dolphins. This was a year when several of the like player wives from the this uh, NFL team, if it wasn't the Dolphins, it was someone else. They, they all went to one of Maribel Morgan's seminars and that year, after having done that, that year, that team won every single game. <laughs> yeah, perfect season. Yeah, that's the one so, <laughs> that was the perfect season. Yeah. I'm pretty, sure, so, I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty well, sure it was the Dolphins' perfect season. Yeah. Well, well, I'd like to say, I guess I have a suggestion. If you want fantastical, yeah. <laughs> unrepeatable success in your life. Oh man. So that's weird. Now, here's one of the things about Maribel Morgan. <laughs> She then, after saying that, right, she says, here's this woman who says you need to dress up in a different sexy costume to meet your husband at the door each day, which for any like, you know, Proverbs 31, like biblical wife, I'm just going to like have a productive household is obviously absurd and weird, (laughs) you know, like and expensive and like just and and like, do you not have any children? Right. You know, like what? Like, how do you anyway? uh, Like she is then listed right after that. Boom. Elizabeth Elliott. Oh no. She lit this oh. is again. This is how she frames it. Elizabeth Elliot. Boom. Like she's so similar to Maribel Morgan. All right. I, I'll let you do with that what you will. But yeah. this is what I learned that there are a lot of prominent women in this hmm. patriarchy movement. So women had a, a voice in yep. the production of militant masculinity. Pretty significant. And even to the point that I believe it was uh Beverly LaHaye sat on <laughs> Uh, yeah. like a presidential council, uh, some council for Ronald Reagan. I don't remember what it was. Yeah. Was it council on the family or something like that? Something yeah. like that. Yeah. So like yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, that's pretty significant major role in, you know, uh, in politics. I have decided that here's something I'm learning. I'm going to write a book called The Dispensationalists and John Wayne and write a very interesting book <laughs> with that <Yeah>. premise. <laughs> that could be interesting. All right. Number two, let me get to number two. Uh, number two, apparently we have all forgotten about the plethora of female CEOs and heads of state before they all got removed in the Cold War to make evangelical men who were anxious about their masculinity feel better about themselves. <laughs> I, I, uh, I don't even remember writing that, but that's what I wrote for number two. Except, except Margaret Thatcher, except yeah. notable, <laughs> notable hero of the Cold War, Margaret Thatcher. Yes, of course. Margaret Thatcher's mentioned, I believe, actually. Oh, uh, sure. At one point. Well, there's, an, there's another one. Uh, if, you, if you're going to go the dispensationalist route, dispensationalists are big boosters of the state of Israel. And right. I believe Gold, Golda Meir was one, of, was one of the first female heads of state in the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. That's definitely true. Yeah. She does. There is a quote at one point that I noticed. That it was, it's something like, you know, the boom after World War II, you know, allowed men to become the sole breadwinners. And it, it just made it sound like, you know, before this men and women were all out in the workforce and it was like, you know, and their kids were in daycare and, you know, it's just, it's like this weird, like, I don't think this is quite what you actually see before. It's a weird, yes, industrialization totally changed family dynamics. And we've talked about it. I mean, in some ways we've talked about as negatively, Yep. but, but again, when you're doing this, like, so what, this is the this is the this is one of the insane things and we always and this is done uh so often 
is the idea that Billy Graham or I mean go back much further right any of the like the idea that you can like easily put John Calvin into a box of a person that like he would side he would just sit here is a weird right is a weird take and when you're like the family structures were just like this (laughs) no they were brutal in the 1800s yeah it was just fam yeah Anyway, it's just right. weird, you know. Give me it's number just three. Weird. She makes a really interesting point, by the way, about okay. like, uh, you know, about how you know, uh, something like changed in men basically when they were no longer like on their own land, working with their hands, but instead went into work for somebody else and were completely dependent upon, uh, like a corporation. And I thought, whoa, that could be an actually really interesting point to like talk about. It didn't go anywhere from there. I just thought, whoa, that's actually like an interesting concept to deal with. Anyway. Number three, <laughs> number three, uh, presidents should have different pastors than just Billy Graham. <laughs> you know, like I, they should have their own pastor and it shouldn't be Billy Graham every time. And that's what it's been, you know, uh, up until recently. That's now I will give you this Billy Graham, significantly better uh, spiritual advisor than Trump's spiritual advisor, who was Paula White. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a a notably that that was one of the ways where it was like, you know, Trump doesn't actually totally understand evangelicals. He's like, yeah, this person, this is who they like. It's like, (laughs) no, total miss. Yeah. Didn't he quote his favorite Bible verses coming from two Corinthians? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Two Uh, Corinthians. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Didn't. All right. Isn't there a famous book about Billy Graham's relationships with the presidents? Yeah. So I've read this. Um, It's called The Preacher and the Presidents. It's really interesting book. And it really shaped um, how I view things. I this is why a book like Jesus and John Wayne can actually gain some traction, because I do think that popular evangelical figures had significant appeared to have significantly more influence than you would expect in the political arena. But what you actually see, I think, is that you have somebody like Billy Graham who clearly had political aspirations in some way. Like he loved being at the center of power and like his Mm. personality was really big and he loved being at that place. Right. He loved that world leaders were calling him. Um, But almost exclusively, you find out in that book, he was being used by the politician in order to get elected because they knew that he understood evangelicals. That was, you know, like that's. That's what you really find out. Uh, but it is fascinating. I'd recommend reading it if if you are interested in this kind of thing. This I found that a far more interesting historical read than, say, uh, Jesus and John Wayne. That is much more an actual work of history, just straightforward history. Yep. All right. All right. Number four. Uh, this one, I don't know how to exactly categorize it, but uh, basically the religious right, we're right about a lot of things. <laughs> They were right about a lot of things. A lot of the stuff they were attempting and trying to push for were actually good things. Um, They obviously, we've been hard on the religious right. Um, They had problems. I don't want to, I'm not defending them across the board, but I came away from this book thinking that maybe one of the reasons that uh, people are so hard on the religious right today, especially from say a perspective like this book is actually because they actually accomplished things. They were good at what they did. They got their people involved pretty high up in political office, and they actually changed laws by their lobbying efforts. And I think that was actually it's I think the reason that uh, people have been so hard on them 
is not just because some of the stuff they believed was a little wacky and problematic, which it was. Uh, but I think the reason that a lot of people like Chris and Dumez are probably hard on the religious right is because they are a threat to uh, the current kind of uh, political machine. David, tell us, tell us you're not a Neanderthal and concluded that the religious <laughs> right was right about a lot of things. Well, um, I mean, the religious right said a lot of things. Yeah. So right. yep. uh, <laughs> you, you say you say enough things, you're gonna you're gonna have some right, some wrong. Um, where I would push back is I I don't think that they were actually all that politically successful. Um, so I, I guess so. I guess I'll go ahead and dissent from from that last one. I think to a large degree they were, and and Dumez even admits this at certain points that they were largely used much in the same way Billy Graham was used. Yeah, they're used as a voting block, um, but they're not really given much in return for their vote. Um, and that that kind of becomes the um, the. Uh, almost almost like the through line of, of the religious right. Um, like even if you take like, if, if I had to say, when was the religious right most successful? I would say between 2002, 2008. Um, I don't know if you remember, but that was when there was every, every state in the United States had ballot initiatives on, on gay marriage, on the legalization, yep. right. Um, and the centerpiece of George W. Bush's 2004, well, not his centerpiece, but a large, like they made sure a lot of those ballot measures happened in 2004. Okay. Carl Rove has, you know, basically said, you know, this, this is our get out the vote, um, uh, you know, thing. Um, and, you know, George W. Bush, you know, merrily, um, you know, got reelected up until Prop 8 in 2008, which was kind of the high watermark when, uh, gay marriage was made illegal in the state of California. If you can believe that in 2008, Californians voted majority for traditional marriage. Um, but ever since then, like every single thing that was accomplished at that point has been completely wiped out and annihilated. Yeah. Okay. Like 100%. Um, like none of that was permanent whatsoever. Um, and this, this, you know, if you, George W. Bush, I don't think was very, um, Let's just say I, I doubt his sincerity in supporting mm. those things. He he liked it to get elected, but I don't think he was very sincere on on those measures. Um, but I, I just give that as an example of even when they're successful, it tends to be temporary and it tends to be um, wiped away later. Yeah, so. yeah, you're convincing. You've I think you've convinced me to uh, soften what I would say, but I will maintain the I, yeah. like the religious right were right about a lot of things. That yeah. I will I'll maintain that. In and what I think it again, even when David talked about voting patterns, this the people were not sympathetic to just the I just vote Republican every time, which is basically, I would say, a pretty fair understanding of how a lot of evangelicals treated voting. And why did they do that? Because there were things that were clearly aligned with what the word of God taught. And marriage would be one example, but much nearer to their heart things like abortion, right? Things about end of life issues. And it was one party is going to fight against this with all they can. This party says they support me. Oftentimes they don't, as David is pointing out accurately. So that's what I do, right? Like there wasn't tons of passion about it. Now, some people were very passionate about it and they would do campaigning, they would do work, but it was kind of, and again, that might be why the religious right uh, was not successful, because the block they had said, okay, okay, I'll listen to you 
and I'll show up on that Tuesday in November, but I don't really want to do anything the rest of the year. Right. But, but that, that this practice isn't, isn't insane. It's a, it's a, it's a fairly rational, whether or not you agree with it or not, it's a pretty rational perspective that I'll get what I get out of this. This is the best I can do straight card, you know, like, Oh, that's not thoughtful. Yeah, I, I get it, but whatever. All right. But that's enough. Pastor Michael, take Number us five. Home. Here we go. Uh, what I was left with reading this book was that we need fathers. Mm. We need fathers. We need uh, father. We need like men uh, generally, but we really need fathers. So many of the issues that arose that were then placed into the hands uh, of like, you know, these big evangelical names to fix, um, to fix through politics, through lobbying, uh, to fix through, you know, uh, James Dobson coming out with another book about how to raise children. So many of these things came about because of a lack of fathers, uh, fathers in the home, fathers in the church uh, who were going to like discipline and care for and love their uh, families, both biological and in uh, the Christian community more broadly. Um, and maybe my encouragement would then be that you don't let people like those writing books like this shame you out of doing that. Mm -hmm. um, it, it would be a shame if uh, many people read this and thought, yeah, I guess it would be bad of me to take responsibility uh, and seek to protect and provide for uh, my wife and children. You know, like that is, uh, this is actually what we need most right now. And if you want to um, try to avoid the pitfalls, the many pitfalls uh, that show up throughout this book, I'm not saying that like, you know, being a father, like cures you of all those things. Uh, obviously many of the men who committed some of the things that she talks about were fathers, but to like actually seek to be a father in light of what the scripture teaches, right. To, to actually take on responsibility and to love in the way that a father is to love uh, in that way, uh, you know, reflecting uh, God, the father, uh, this is something that I think we really need. Thank you for listening to this, the definitive review of Jesus and John Wayne. It will never be done again. And I'm it, it was long. <laughs> it was long, man. We, you know, if you sat through it, good on you. It's a mega, it's a mega episode. Thank you, Pastor Michael. Thank you, David, for coming back again. And I am sure there will be more useful reviewing we can do in the future. Man, and there's so much more. Hey, if you uh, want to see more, I'm going to stick all the notes that I made, the 12 pages of notes I have, including uh, uh, basically uh, a breakdown of each chapter and kind of the main points and thesis of each chapter and uh, other you know ideas or thoughts I had. I'm not going to guarantee they're great or good. Uh, but if you want to see more, I'm going to put that behind the paywall in, in our Patreon so that people can see it there.